Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may be hearing this. This is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and this is today's episode 348 of Bible Bites as we continue reading through the scriptures this year. My reading today is found in 2 Thessalonians chapters 1 through 3, the entire book. It's a small uh, epistle written by Paul. And Paul wrote this letter. This was his second letter. He had just recently written to them the first letter. And then apparently over those few months or weeks or however long it was, um, there were some false teaching that came in, misinterpreted and and began to teach wrongly what Paul was talking about, particularly in regard to the second coming of Jesus. And so Paul really has it a burden in his heart to correct that. So he writes the second letter to the Thessalonians, to the Thessalonian church. Um, he wants to make sure they understand that the Lord's coming is imminent, which is what he brought out in First Thessalonians, but he wanted to also explain to them some of the things concerning the Lord's return that will give more detail. So this was written about 51 to 52 A.D., uh, not long at all um, after his first letter to them. So let's begin. In chapter 1, verse 3, I found it, it interesting because he talks about how it's fitting. In other words, it's right, it's necessary, it's appropriate to give thanks to the Lord for the church that is thriving and growing in faith through the word, the rhema word, because that's how faith grows, is through the word being preached and being heard. In our hearts, we learn that from the book of Romans. He also goes on in the next few verses and commends them for their faithfulness, even in the face of persecution. And he gives them the hope at the promise of God's, going, God, God's retribution that's promised when he returns. In other words, those that are mistreating them and abusing them and persecuting them will have their day in court, so to speak. They will, they will have to stand before the Lord, and God will give the retribution. When he comes back, he will make all things right, in other words. So he's um, really commending the fact that they're faithful in spite of persecution. Then he begins in verse 7 through 10 to give us details about the Lord's coming. He says he wants to give you who are troubled, this is who he's writing to, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. In other words, he's saying here God's going to take care of it in the end. The, the things you're suffering, the things you're, you're being persecuted about, God will set it all right. God's going to destroy them and bring righteous judgment at that time. And you, you will be blessed in spite of that. So he, 
he is trying to encourage and build their faith as well through this. <clears throat> he goes on and he talks about how God blesses us. He says that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's encouraging us to recognize that we live for Jesus. Praise God. God loves us and he blesses us because he loves us. But his ultimate purpose in us is to shine forth Jesus to the earth. Hallelujah. And to the world around us. Now in chapter 2, he goes into quite a bit of detail about the time of the coming of the Lord and some of the things that will happen leading up to that, etc., so that's pretty much what he gets into in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. Now, there are disagreements from different people about this or that in terms of the coming of the Lord. There's disagreements and uh, different interpretations from Scripture among many Christians. And so I'm not trying to argue those points. I do have a revelation study and some other um, teachings where I cover more of, of that and what I personally believe and find the scriptures to be speaking about. But I also give honor to others that I know have differences of opinion about that. Um, and I just want to say in regard to this topic, because we'll be dealing with this again as we continue through the rest of this book, um, the book of the Bible, I mean, especially the book of Revelation. So we want to give honor to each other, and we want to recognize that we all, the Bible says, see through a glass darkly. So none of us have the perfect interpretation of everything and every timing and every event and all of that. So we simply take what the scriptures say as much as possible. Let the plain sense uh, tell us what it means. And, you know, we do the best that we can to understand it and then believe and prepare accordingly. But I do want to go over what this chapter does say. First of all, he is explaining more about the second coming and he I want to read verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you, and then he goes on, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come in the past. So first of all, here he's telling them that the day of Jesus Christ, in other words, the second coming of Christ has not happened yet. And today we know that that is still true. Jesus has not come back yet. The book of Revelation has not been fully fulfilled. There are uh, portions of it, like the chapters 2 and 3, in this age that we are living in right now. Um, but the whole of the book and all that it details that will happen have not yet come to pass. So he's saying that, you know, don't be all scared. Jesus hasn't come back and you've, you know, been left behind or whatever. Then he goes on, and, he, and I want to point out, too, that he's talking about what's concerning the coming of the Lord and our gathering together with him. Now, this is where it can get a little bit sticky, because does and mean that both of these things are happening at the exact same time, or that one could happen and uh, 
cumulative at a later point, the other happened, and that's part of the debate in the church over these, the second coming of Jesus and all the things leading up to that, particularly what's considered to be the rapture of the church and the tribulation. There are different interpretations of that. The, the Christian church believes Jesus is coming back. We do believe that. But there are differences of opinion about some of these other things. So let's just see what this verse, these scriptures in this chapter teach us. He clearly says it has not come yet this, this time. Jesus has not come back yet. When he does come at his official second coming, he will establish his kingdom reign from Jerusalem, and he will rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. That's very clear in the scriptures, and we don't have to discount that, or I don't personally believe we even need to argue about that, because it's very clear when the plain sense makes sense, we're not seeking other sense, because we don't want to get into nonsense. Um, I know that there are some that, that use that as kind of a mantra today. I want to read verse 3 and 4, though, because it does give some details. He's giving details throughout this chapter about what to expect or, or some of the things that must happen prior to this event, what he's talking about, the Lord coming back. He says in verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, meaning the day when Jesus appears and comes back to earth, will not come. Unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, he claims. All right. So Paul is saying here that there's a few things that have to happen before Jesus is going to come back. One of them is called apostasy. It's the Greek word apostasia. It was translated the falling away. It means falling away or defection, a defection from truth. It can be used to mean a divorce or a separation from truth, from what is right, what, what is um, the foundations. And it can also mean a rebellion the other thing that has to happen is this man of sin. Now, many times in Christianity, we tend to refer to him as the Antichrist. He could also be called the Pseudo-Christ or the False Messiah, the False Christ. But he will be, there will be a human being that will be the leader of this rebellion, the leader of all of this, this evil departure from truth and from what is right. Now it says that he has to be revealed. He will be at after at this time he will be revealed, exposed, a cover will be taken off and we will know who he is that he will be revealed to be known for what he is. He will declare opposition to the living God and even decree that he is God. And the other factor that we need to pick up from these verses is that it does at least imply 
that there's going to be a third temple built because he's going to set himself up as God in the temple of God, which means the temple of God must be standing in order for him to be in there and presenting himself as God. Now, we see the prototype or the pattern for this man in history during the intertestamental period of time, during those 400 years. As a matter of fact, it was about 165 B.C. when the, the, uh, there was a ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes in the days of the Maccabees. And he ruled, he actually desecrated the temple and proclaimed himself to, to be God in a sense, he was this prototype or pattern. And we had the Maccabeans. They were a Jewish family, uh, very zealous for the Lord and for what was right. And so God granted them blessing. That's why we celebrate the Feast of Hanukkah. And they had the eight days of miraculous light from the uh, oil that was burning, that was only enough for one day, but God miraculously let it go for eight days, and God was able to give them the victory in that time, because that wasn't the full uh, completion of God's pattern. This wasn't the Antichrist, but he was a type of this Antichrist, this man of sin that Paul is describing here. So he formed a pattern for this that Paul is talking about, and something similar will happen again. So that implies that the third temple will, in fact, be rebuilt. We do believe that, and that this man of sin is going to come into that temple, present himself to be God, and desecrate it again. There are other scriptures that teach that as well. Even Jesus referred to it as, and it's typically called or known to be the abomination of desolation, or the abomination that brings desolation. Um, and it's from Daniel. It's also prophesied, if I'm not mistaken, I did not look this up, but I believe it's in Jeremiah as well. And uh, Jesus himself referred to it in Matthew 24 and some of the other places. Now, in verse 6, I want to read verses 6 and following for a few minutes. And now you know what is restraining that he, meaning this man of sin, may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he, this restrainer, is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. All right. This is telling us that there is an operation already at work in the earth that Paul called the mystery of lawlessness. That simply means that it's, it's a hidden thing that's operating now. You could call it maybe a, a secret club, a, a shadow government. It, it, there's, a, there's a band of things that are going on behind the scenes. It's an evil um, thing that's going on, mystery of lawlessness, there's hidden purposes and counsels going on right now of lawlessness, illegality, 
contempt for the law and violation of law. And we already see that that is happening in part. And the reason it's happening only in part is because of what Paul is calling here this restrainer. There is something or someone holding him back, this man of sin and this evil kingdom, from rising to the point that it desires to rise to. And that restrainer is what Paul is talking about here that will continue until God has appointed the time to take that restrainer out of the way. And then that man of sin is going to be revealed then. He's going to come full-fledged into all of this wickedness and lawlessness that he desires to do, but he will have an end because God, the Lord himself, when he comes, in Revelation 19, it tells us about this. He will have a sword that goes out of his mouth. It's a fiery sword of his word, and it is through that that he will consume this man of sin with, his, with the breath of his mouth that tells us here. So that's what's happening. Now, the argument and part of the debate in Christianity is over who or what this restrainer is. And there are differences of opinion about that. Some have said that, you know, it might be um, different, different people or different things. Some have said that it's the Holy Spirit at work in the earth. Some believe that it's the Holy Spirit in the church. And so, in essence, it's the church of the Lord that is working in the earth. Now, that is the particular viewpoint that I hold, is that it's not so much just the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit be removed, it, part of it depends on the type of view you have on the rapture and the tribulation and all of those things. But there is a restrainer. This is what Paul is saying. Whether we understand fully what it is or who it is, there is a restrainer. And until the right time when God removes the restrainer, that man of sin and this mystery of lawlessness continues to operate hiddenly and behind the scenes, but it can't fulfill its entire mission. It can't do everything it wants to do. And this man of sin will not be revealed until that restrainer is removed. And when he is removed, then this man of sin, this man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. But Jesus is going to consume him. He will bring him to his final end. Now, he goes on and he talks a little bit more about this man of sin. He talks about how he is coming um, coming down and in relation in the sense to, according to the power and likeness of Satan himself and the kingdom of darkness. He will come with great deception. I believe that's one of the reasons that as we see more and more of this kingdom and this mystery of lawlessness at work, the main thing Jesus warned about when he spoke about the coming of the Lord in the time of the end was to not be deceived. There will be great, great deception. And uh, Paul even goes into that here. He says he'll be very deceptive. He'll have dunamis power, the ability to do a lot of mighty things. There will be great signs and lying wonders. These are not coming from God, but they 
can appear as angel of light, so to speak. They can appear to be Christian to deceive, Jesus said, even the very elect, if it were possible. He's coming with an unrighteous deception here. So we must understand there's a reason why Jesus said over and over again, do not be deceived. And even the apostles, we read that as they warn us over and over against deception. Because not everything that glitters is gold. Not everything that calls itself Christian is Christian. We must be careful. And the way you spot deception or counterfeit is when you know the real thing. If they are training people, FBI or banks or whoever, training people to spot counterfeit bills, they will have people go through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of real bills over and 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 over again and then slip a counterfeit in. Because once you know the real, you'll be able to spot the counterfeit right away. But it takes learning the real. And where we learn the real, I'm talking about the truth versus the lie, the truth versus the counterfeit. The way you know the truth is you get into God's Word. You read it. You read it over and over. You read it every day. And then you reread it every day. And then you reread it again. And you get so familiar with the truth that is in this book that you will not be deceived by the counterfeit. And so that's what Paul is stressing here. And that's what God stresses in his word. Now he goes on and he talks about their end. He talks about how they're going to be condemned. Why? Because they rejected the truth. These are the people that stick their fist in God's face and say, I know you to be who you are, but I'm going to refuse you. I'm not going to have you. I'm not going to have anything to do with you. I resist you with everything within me. That's who these are. And so in that situation, <clears throat> then God will bring his righteous and holy judgments to bear in its time. And God will see to it <clears throat> that righteousness and justice prevails in the end. Now, he speaks to the church and he says this, verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by our epistle, either by me coming in person and teaching you or through the writing of my letters. Paul is saying to them, God saw fit to call you out and to choose you, and you responded. You said, yes, Lord. You opened the door to Jesus, and you welcomed him in, and now you are saved. And so he says, in spite of the evil, in spite of the lawlessness, in spite of all this that's going on, you stand fast. You stand strong. Keep the faith. Hold the truth. Hold the traditions. 
the precepts and what we have entrusted to you through the teaching of God's word. And so he leaves them and he gives them that instruction in, the spite, in spite of what they're living in and in spite of what they're facing. And then he goes on and he prays that God will give them comfort, that he will comfort their hearts, verse 17, and establish them in every good word and work. Notice this too. This is a good prayer for us to pray even today in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for not all have faith. This is a good prayer that we can pray that God's word is going quickly, rapidly, free, freely, a free course for the gospel in the earth and that it will be received with esteem and honor and weight. And that we can be delivered from those that are unreasonable and wicked that stand against us. I want to read verse 3 also as we begin to close. But the Lord is faithful. Oh, we need to remember this. The Lord is faithful. Who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Hallelujah. God is faithful and we can feed on his faithfulness, which is what Psalm 37, 3 tells us to do. And then notice in verse 5, now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. May God do so. This is an excellent prayer for us and I pray it for all of us right now in Jesus name. Now may the Lord direct our hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. The love of God will be where we can stand and it removes all fear and its torment from us because we're solid in knowing that no matter what, God loves us and nothing can separate us from that love. Paul's already written about that in Romans chapter 8. And may God direct us into the patience of Christ so that we follow his example and endure to the end, not being swerved away, away by even the greatest of trials or suffering. May God grant it to be so. <clears throat> he goes on and he, as he's concluding, he mentions a few things. First and foremost, be careful about who you have as close associates even among the church, even Christian brothers and sisters. Now he goes on and he talks about those that are lazy and busybodies and all of that. And he says, no, he makes this God a godly principle that is true. Everyone should have this as our work ethic. He says in verse 10, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. In other words, we, we can't be lazy. We've got to have a work ethic. We've got to be those willing to work to provide for our needs. And so he goes on and he says, don't let them influence you. But then he ends it up and he says, yet count them, don't count them as an enemy, but admonish them as a brother. In other words, there are people in the faith, in the church that just need to be loved and, and brought into a greater understanding, taught and, and helped along the way so that we can all grow together in Jesus Christ. 
I hope this has been a blessing to you today. And Lord willing, you can join us again for future episodes of Bible Bites. God bless you in Jesus' name.